Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we chatted with Isabel Ibanez about her debut young adult fantasy novel, Woven in Moonlight. This week, AWM President Carrie Cranston sits down with author and historian Michelle Duster, who discusses the legacy of her great-grandmother, Ida B. Wells. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. Um, so we're really grateful for all of you being here and valuing the past, present, and future of American writing. We're here today to talk about one of America's seminal black women writers whose words called this country to justice for her people. Ida B. Wells was a suffragist, an anti-lynching activist, and a fearless journalist in a time when that was a dangerous thing for a black woman to be. When challenged on her ambitions, however, she responded, I felt that one had better die fighting against injustice than to die like a dog or a rat in a trap. I had already determined to sell my life as dearly as possible if attacked. I felt if I could take one lyncher with me, this would even up the score a little bit. This year, her work was honored with a posthumous Pulitzer Prize citation that noted her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African Americans during the era of lynching. Her autobiography was republished this spring by the University of Chicago Press, and next year she will be the subject of a new biography by her great-granddaughter, Michelle Duster, who joins us today. Dr. Duster is an author and educator who has spoken often about the legacy of Wells and previously worked on books, Ida from Abroad, and Ida in Her Own Words. She teaches at Columbia College in Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Duster, and thank you for all you've done to keep your grand, great-grandmother's legacy alive. Oh, thanks for having me, Carrie. This is exciting. Well, we're glad to do this program. Um, we have a, a number of folks who have joined us, um, and I thought we could just kind of start out. Um, I have uh, some questions that I want to ask you, and then we'll, we'll, we'll turn to the audience. Um, one of the first things I kind of wanted to ask you was your grandmother was the youngest daughter of Ida B. Wells, correct? Right. My grandmother's name was um, Alfreda Barnett Duster, and Ida B. Wells had four children, and my grandmother was her youngest. Okay. And and she spent a number of years trying to get the autobiography published. Um, Ida had passed away before she could finish it, and it took a long time to get that first edition published in 1970. Can you talk a little bit about why that was difficult then and why this book is so important now? Um, This is from what I was told, (laughs) Um, basically from my father, was that my father um, was one of five children of Alfredo's. And so just so people know the family tree, there was Ida B. Wells, had four children. My youngest, uh, her youngest daughter was Alfreda Barnett Duster, um, Alfreda had five children <clears throat> whose all last names are, are Duster and my father Donald was her middle child and so from my father I learned that his mother um, Alfreda Barnett Duster um, worked on the um, editing the manuscripts um, for years even while they were all growing up when they were children and so can you imagine you know trying to juggle raising five children with you know editing an autobiography um, so it took her a really long time to do that and then from what I understand in the 1960s is when she finally was able to start 
um, basically shopping the idea to get it published. And that was the 1960s um, of, you know, a lot of civil unrest and racial um, tension. And so according to my father, it took her a very long time to find a publisher that was willing to publish a book that was about a militant, radical, um, you know, quote, difficult woman in the middle of a civil uprising. Um, so it, it took a while. So thank God, you know, University of Chicago um, decided to do it. And then, you know, with the republishing of it now, um, with her winning of the posthumous uh, Pulitzer, you know, what, why do you think people should really delve into this text right now? You know, I mean, it's 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 good, and it's also a little disappointing um, mm-hmm. that a book that was written in 1928, and um, when she started writing it in 1928 and 1931, she was almost at the end. Um, so we're talking 89 years after um, Ida B. Wells died, and so for the writing that she did to be relevant today, um, in a way, almost shows how things haven't changed as much as we would hope. Um, but it also ties the past to the present. And I think that's important for people to understand that what is going on today is a continuum of what was uh, going on actually, you know, post-slavery, um, post the Civil War, because my great-grandmother was born in 1862. So her autobiography covers, you know, her childhood, which was during Reconstruction, all the way through the Great Depression. And that was a huge um you know, time, 70 years of our country's history that her life spanned. So I think it just gives people perspective of we're all descendants of the people who lived before us. Um, so we are all affected by what happened before us. Yeah. And, um, and so as someone who grew up with the legacy of Ida B. Wells in your family, um, from your, your, your father and, and your grandmother, um, how did it affect you and drive you or, you know, when did you feel the pull to take on the work that you've done to help further the memory of your great grandmother? I, I mean, it's been a little bit of a sort of a uh, long windy road mm-hmm. um, for me. I never felt any pressure whatsoever. Thank God um, to follow in anybody's footsteps. In fact, my grandmother and both of my parents were very clear um, that we should, we meaning my brothers and I have two brothers never felt any pressure to be like somebody else or to live up to somebody else's um, legacy. They were very encouraging of us having our own accomplishments and our own sense of identity. And so my, you know, my journey has been based on my own personal um, interest. And I think it started in college when I I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire Mm -hmm. and I grew up on the South side of Chicago And so the difference between um, those two environments were fairly vast. And it was the first time in my life that I had been in the minority, honestly. Um, And so it was a big adjustment for me to be in an environment where I was one of the few that looked like me. And I had a lot of um, 
situations where I felt that my right to be there was questioned um, and who I was and what I represented was misunderstood. And so it made me think that there's a power in narrative because people were making assumptions about me before they even met me. And I felt like, where are they getting this from? And I, and so I concluded it was from the media um, and a lot of other kinds of um you know, materials that people read about the South Side of Chicago or read about black people. And so I was like, I need to do something to change this narrative because it was very damaging. Um, and I think, um, you know, until we have a situation where there is truth um, and, and reality is represented in a, in a, uh, in a way that is uh, representative of, of, of the whole um, story of African Americans specifically because that affects me, then we're going to continue having these problems that we have in, the, in our country. Right. And um, now you're a writer yourself, and when you read Ida B. Wells's work, what impacts you the most about her writing? You know, you know what strikes me the most about her writing, um, one is that it's extremely descriptive. Um, she she paints a picture with her words, and so you can imagine what was happening um, based on how how she wrote. Um, it's really very skillful. And the other thing that I found very interesting um, when it comes to tactics is how she used the writing of other people to incriminate them. So it wasn't even that she's saying things about other people. She was like, it was almost like today where people would do a screenshot of somebody's, you know, Twitter or um, Facebook page and say, and use it and say, well, this is what they said. So she wasn't even paraphrasing what people said. She was reprinting um, what other people said. And so I thought that was a really interesting technique that she used to build her case and she used writing, I felt like it was almost like she was um, building a, a legal case. Um, and she used people's own, own work as evidence. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, she's such a journalist and, and so focused on the facts, as you're saying, like using other people's words, using statistics, you know, really making strong case and argument. Um, it, it is really fascinating. She, um, you know, when we, when we look at it and, and, uh, and you look at her life and you go through this autobiography and you see it from her point of view, um, you know, she started so young in fighting injustice. You know, she was 22 when she was forcibly removed from a train car um, and said that the separate but equal accommodations they wanted to provide for her wasn't enough. So you know, she took that to court. And so like, as you're saying, she, she really started fighting as a lawyer almost because she, she found a lawyer. She said, this is my case. And, and she took it to court and she won until the state Supreme court overruled it, of course, um, a few years later. Um, you know, I can definitely see that. How do you think some of that, um, effort on her part as a really young woman, um, as a teacher at this point in her life, really, um, and that was her focus was to be a teacher then. Um, you know, when we look at the future in, in, the, in the 60s, when this book was hard to get published, and you look at what Rosa Parks and, and the Montgomery boycott were doing, how do you think she may have influenced some of that? Um, I can only 
guess, because I mean, you know, the, the autobiography was published in 1970. So that was after, you know, a lot of the, the activities that were taking place in the 1950s and 60s. So I'm not sure how yeah. much those people in that time frame knew about Ida B. Wells, um, because she was unfortunately sort of obscure um, and kind of erased um, from history from the time that she died until the 19, 1970. Yeah. Um, I mean, some, you know, there is some feeling in our family that there was a, an effort to, you know, be marginalized. Um, so I really appreciate the fact that she decided to take control over her own story and her own narrative and chronicle it herself. Um, so I yeah. don't know how many, how many people in the 1950s knew about her. Um, I mean, she was very well known during her lifetime, but that was 30, you know, um, what, yeah, 30, 40 years after she died. So she could have been forgotten at that point. Yeah, it is hard to say. And it's, it, it's just so interesting that, you know, the, the parallels there, the fact that she fought so hard for these things and for so long and was so well known in her era and to to almost be erased in in some level. I think, you know, the story that that was a part of the either the introduction or within the text of this is that she says that a young girl said, I knew you were important. Someone told me I should, you know, she wanted to use Ida B. Wells as an example, but she didn't know why Ida B. Wells was important. She just knew the name was important. So it is, you know, like you said, sort of tragic that there's this intervening time when when some of that was so lost. Um, I mean, when we, when we look at her and in, in, in kind of going through the, the biography and, and, and really looking, um, you know, she she becomes a writer partly because, you know, she's so focused on justice, um, she starts writing as well as teaching. And she, she writes an article about the, you know, failure of the school system to be separate but equal and, and saying that what the African-American children are being taught in is, is not uh, substantial enough. And, um, and that loses her her job, so she becomes a full-time writer. Mm -hmm. um, do you think it's important uh, that someone, you know, that that happened? Um, that she really just had no option but to really focus on her writing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do believe um, that sometimes circumstances create um, a person's life journey more so than them having some kind of, you know, step-by-step -step plan um, <laughs> on how they're going to live their lives. And um, so, yes, I mean, I think the fact that she lost her job as a teacher put her in a position where she had to make a decision on how she was going to make a living. And she, in her autobiography, made it clear that she enjoyed journalism much more than, she, than teaching. And mm -hmm. so she made the decision to just go full force, um, put all of her effort and energy into, um, she actually co-owned the newspaper. And so she put all of her energy into building that as a business. So she was very aggressive about soliciting subscriptions for the newspaper in order to generate revenue. Um, and she wouldn't have been able to do that if she were still teaching full time. So it kind of freed up her time um, and it made her, 
make a choice. Uh, and so she chose to just dive in full, you know, full force with the, um, building up the newspaper. And I mean, I personally, I think, you know, I, I, that was one of the things that sort of helped me make some of my decisions um, because in the great, the great recession of 2008, um, uh, I was in the middle of creating the first collection of writing about Ida when I was, you know, one of the millions of people who was laid off. And when I thought about my great grandmother's journey, I kind of was like, well, she did it. I can do it. So I put all of my energy into finishing the book and promoting it based on, you know, how she did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. She was, I mean, it's just amazing that, you know, a woman, an African-American woman in the 1880s is not just writing, but taking over control of a newspaper um, and, and then publishing, you know, being the publisher and the editor and promoter of that work and, and really getting it out there. Um, and of course, this is what leads her to leave the South because her reporting on the lynching and what's happening in Memphis around her, you know, where she's literally seeing people killed for, for you know, no reason, brutally um, murdered and, and the growth of this. Um, and then it comes to threaten her. Can you talk a little bit about just how bad the situation was and what happened? I mean, um, so from what I understand, I'm not sure if she actually witnessed anybody being killed, um, but but she, her friends, three of her friends were killed basically for, in today's world, you know, owning a business while black. Right. Um, <laughs> they were successful business owners that um, a white business owner felt was, you know, comp- competitive with, with their, his. So he basically literally destroyed the competition. Um, and so from what I understand, my great grandmother did was after other lynchings took place, she went to the, um, the town or the area where it took place and interviewed people after the fact about what happened and sort of collected stories and collected, um, data in order to basically build a case of the fact that most of the people who were being lynched were not, uh, guilty, of either any crime or they were not guilty of the crimes they were um, um, accused of. And so she started building a case that there was a false narrative going on that, you know, this whole narrative of protecting white women against black men's, uh, you know, violence. And she found, you know, time and time again that either the liaisons were consensual or the person might have been guilty of a crime, but it was a petty crime, like, you know, stealing a loaf of bread or, or even make-believe kind of uh, crimes, like um, not, you know, not tipping their hat to somebody or, you know, things like that. So, so that's how she started saying, wait a minute, this is not, this is terrorism. This is not about uh, criminal justice. Because of the um, her reporting, they burned down her newspaper, and they threatened to kill her if she returned. She was out of town at the time, doing her work, um, and 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 because of that, she really had to not go back to the South for almost twenty some years. I think is 
at least. Um, I mean, there's, you know, debate about exactly when she ever ventured back into the South. I mean, from what we understood, she never went back again until only one time when Mm -hmm. she went back to LA and Arkansas in 1921. Um, But some people say she went back before that, but I I don't know. Um, I'd have to see evidence. Um, Mm -hmm. But she was attending a church convention in Philadelphia um, in May of 1892 when her printing press was destroyed. And then she went up to New York um, and she met with T. Thomas Fortune. This is according to her autobiography. And yeah. T. Thomas Fortune is the one who told her, you know, you, you, you might as well just decide to stay here because this is what happened um, to your printing press. And there were threats to her life. Basically, from what I understand, they said that people were stationed at the, um, at the rail, at the train station, ready to kill her if she got off the train. Um, and so, so they said that it would, it would, it would have basically caused a riot because then the, the black men were ready to defend her if, you know, if she were harmed. So they were all like, you know what, maybe you should just stay away um, so that it won't, you know, end up being a, a bloodbath. Right. Um, so from what I understand, um, T. Thomas Fortune offered to have her write for his newspaper, The New York Age, and he wanted her subscription um, you know, list for the, the Memphis Free Speech. In exchange, and so she made a bargain with him that she would give him the subscription list if he gave her a quarter uh, ownership of the newspaper. Um, so she was a businesswoman also. And I really think that is sort of underappreciated about her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think of her as a businesswoman in addition to all of the other things she did. She was very savvy um, when it came to, you know, negotiating and, and having financial control. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of that goes to, I mean, we didn't really touch on her childhood as, you know, someone whose parents died when she was 16 as the oldest child and then responsibility for all of her siblings at 16, you know, and, and went to school and became an educator and became a teacher. She was constantly throughout her life being in charge of everything. Um, and, and maintaining this fierce sense of independence. Um, and so it is, it's really amazing. You're right. She was a businesswoman. She constantly took control of these mediums. Um, now, it, it's around that same time then that she begins the lecture circuit and begins to travel abroad after the, after the fire and everything else. And there, can you talk a little bit about why she had to go abroad you know, what she couldn't accomplish in the U.S. that she needed to accomplish over there by talking about the lynching in another country instead of here? Well, you know, this, again, to me, is a story of how it's sort of hard to plan out your life um, Mm -hmm. because one thing sort of leads to another. And from what I understand, I mean, she was in New York and she was writing for the New York Age and she wrote a series of articles in the newspaper that was um, converted into her first pamphlet, which was Southern Horrors, Lynch Law and All Its Phases. And there were a group of women in New York who were club women and they invited her to talk to them. And and so they sponsored um, some speaking engagements for her. 
And so she started kind of speaking in New York and Philadelphia area about what was going on. And her, her uh, goal was to educate people in the North about what was happening in the South, because again, um, the people in the Northern part of the country were getting newspaper um, stories that were not accurate about what was really going on. So there was sort of a misinformation that people in the North were hearing, which was that, you know, people were committing crimes and they, they deserved to be punished. And so she was like, no, that's not what's really going on here. And at one of the lectures that she gave, there was a woman named Catherine Empey who was from Britain who heard her speech. Mm-hmm. And Catherine Empey um, was part of a group called the Society for the Brotherhood of Man in England or in the United Kingdom that was about um, like civil rights um, for for minorities because they were kind of focusing on India a little bit. Um, and so she wrote an article about what Ida wrote or what Ida said. And another woman named Isabel Mayo read the article in Scotland and Isabel is the one who was like, we need to have Ida come here to talk about this. So to me, that is just amazing, you know, that, you know, one thing led to another. And that's how she got invited um, to go do a speaking tour in the United Kingdom originally in 1883. And um, a lot of things happened there and it got cut short. And then she was invited back in 1894 um, to England. And she was speaking to groups of people that were about... Um, justice and equality, um, and she was influencing and in, in, in trying to um, convince people to boycott Southern cotton as a tool to put international pressure on this country to stop lynching. Yeah, and I think that was, you know, again, when you talk about the business aspect of her, it was really that, you know, there was, you know, she was having trouble being heard in the white audiences because the white papers were not carrying what she was writing about. And then not at all. <laughs> she gets to England and there's a white audience that's willing to listen to her. And it's not just that they're willing to listen to her, but that there's that economic impact that, you know, the South needs the cotton sales to England and, and, and all of its colonies. And, and it's a huge part of the Southern economic power. And if you upset those people enough and they don't want to deal with the South because of what they're hearing, then she's having much more of an impact um, even over there than she could have in the U.S., which I think was was fascinating that it came to that, that, you know, she had to go abroad to be heard back in her own country. Well, yeah, I mean, and it was a it was an added, it was a, a dynamic of sort of international shame. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, and, and it was equivalent to you know, right now we have you know sanctions against different countries in order to put pressure on them to you know do certain things, and so that's what she was doing. She was literally trying to institute like sanctions, economic you know kind of sanctions on the United States in order to um, make a difference because she realized that I mean she and there are, you know um, several um, comments that she made that. The only thing that matters when it comes to making change is economic, um, you know, power. And even and, and that was even evident when she was in Memphis and encouraged people to boycott the streetcars and white-owned businesses because her attitude was like, well, you know, we can't appeal to their conscience, so let's appeal to their pocket. Yeah. 
And the um, interestingly, um, you know, when we were, uh, er, you know, when she was in this phase, she met Frederick Douglass, um, and and as she came back from England, and I, I think it was, you know, it's eighteen ninety three, as you had said, she's she was over there and she was working, and the World's Columbia Exposition was going on here, and it was another example of people trying to downplay the significance of the African-American, you know, there was no reference to the African-American involvement in the building of this country. Um, and so, you know, they really, you know, she, she and, and, and Frederick Douglass and some others, but she did most of the work, um, put out this pamphlet um, that, you know, they were able at least to use um, Frederick's position at, in the Haitian pavilion. So again, that sort of, you know, international connection point. Um, they, they couldn't get a place of their own within the exhibits, but the country of Haiti built a pavilion um, and, and had Frederick there every day. And then she was a part of that. So can you talk a little bit about what that was and, and the impact that that had on her? Right. Well, she met, Frederick, as far as I know, she met Frederick Douglass, um, I think in 1891, mm-hmm. and she went to a newspaper convention, um, a journalist convention. And so he knew who she was. Um, they were about 45 years apart in, in age. So she yeah, looked yeah. at him as like a father figure. Um, and he was one of the people that influenced her to go to um, Britain also, because apparently um, the, the, there was at first an idea of Frederick Douglass going, but then he was like, you know, either you're the one who has the story, you're the one who knows, you know, firsthand what's going on, so you go. Um, so she went to England in 1893, and then and then that actually influenced her even more to um, get involved with the pamphlet. Frederick Douglass invited her to come to Chicago to work on the pamphlet. He had told her that he was going to raise the funds for um, the production of the pamphlet. And so she was like, okay, you do that. And I'm going to go to England for this speaking tour. And then when I get back, we'll get this done. And when she got back, um, that he had not been able to raise the funds. <laughs> so she, because he was trying to go through a more traditional route of kind of getting sponsors and that kind of thing. And so basically she did what today would be considered crowdfunding Mm-hmm. And went to churches, to women's groups and churches, and just made appeals and raised the money, you know, past the hat kind of thing and, and raised the money. Um, so not only did she raise most of the money for the pamphlet, but she also edited it. Um, Frederick Douglass, Irvine Garland Penn, and Ferdinand Barnett, and my great-grandmother, Eddie B. Wells, ultimately Barnett, um, were the four contributors to the pamphlet. And when she went to England, she was, you know, interacting with a lot of people there who she realized didn't know as much information about what was going on in this country as um, she was hoping. And so she was obviously educating them. But that gave her even more um, enthusiasm for participating in the World's Fair because she felt that this is the world coming to Chicago and what better way to educate the entire world about what's going on in this country than to participate at the World's Fair. Frederick Douglass was part of the Haitian Pavilion because he was what was considered by today's world an ambassador to Haiti at the time. And so the country of Haiti asked him to participate in the Haitian Pavilion, which if you think about, that is pretty nuts, you know, that, that it took another country um, to have him participate versus his own country 
Frederick Douglass, who was one of the most famous people of his day, right, um, wasn't even able to represent his own country at you know within the World's Fair. So I just stood outside of the Haitian Pavilion every day for several months, handing out the pamphlet. From what I understand, they they uh, printed about twenty thousand copies mm-hmm. of the pamphlet, and I think distributed around ten thousand at the fair. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. We had a copy. We had an exhibit here on Frederick Douglass in 2018-2019. We recently put it online. And um, the uh, it was, you know, it, that was a, po- a focus of it was sort of the latter years of Douglass. And so, you know, that was right before he passed away. And we had a copy of the pamphlet here that we had um, printed up because it's not in print anymore, which is, is a real shame because it's an amazing piece of work. You know, we say pamphlet, but it's 96 pages long and just incredibly dense in the arguments and the writing. And, and most of it's her. Um, and and it was just an amazing piece. And to think that, you know, that brought her here and really that's what made her a part of Chicago. Um, at that point, she really, Chicago became her home after that. Right, because she met Ferdinand Barnett, who was one of the contributors of the pamphlet, um, who ultimately ended up being her husband and my great-grandfather. Um, and he was actually more than Ida's husband. Um, uh-huh. He was an attorney, a very successful attorney. He actually ended up being a, an assistant state's attorney for the state of Illinois. Yeah. And he also owned the conservator newspaper. So he was very, um, you know, very accomplished on his own. I do want to say that um, the first uh, book that I created was Ida in her own words, which was um, Ida's section of the pamphlet that was distributed at the World's Fair. Um, And so I wanted people to be able to read her writing um, because, like you said, the pamphlet is not very accessible. And so I wanted people to not only read her writing, but then also I wrote a section that kind of, this was in 2008, um, that talked about what was going on today and how it sort of connected to what was going on at that time. And then the second book that I um, edited was Ida from Abroad, which was her uh a series of articles that she wrote from England during her speaking tour. And very few people have ever read all of the articles that she wrote, which are very interesting because it's kind of almost like a travel log. And she's talking about her experiences, the people that she's meeting, the places that she's seeing and sort of her impressions. And one one of the things that I took away from reading those articles was that she felt free for the first time in her life in another country it took her to go to. Um, there was also a letter exchange between her and Frederick Douglass while she was in England. And I included those letters in, in the book as well, because that to me was very fascinating because you see her private kind of writing, which has a very different tone than her public writing. Um, and so, you know, you get a chance to see some of her vulnerabilities and her concerns and, um, you know, you, you, you realize how young she was um, at that time and, and the kind of relationship that she and Frederick Douglass had, which was sort of a parent-child, if you want to call it a, a mentor, um, you know, relationship. Yeah. It makes them also human, you know, because I think a lot of times people look at these historic figures as these, you know, bigger than life, you know, larger than life. Um, figures and they are to some, you know, obviously they did a lot, but they're also human and they have vulnerabilities. And I think it's important for people to be able to see the human side of them. Yeah. I am. 
we should probably, I want to get to the Q&A from our, our participants who are logged in um, in a second, but I just wanted to remind them if to put Q&A into the Q&A section and we'll call on you or we'll read your question out loud. But I wanted to ask you, you know, kind of one more question. There's so much, you know, because then obviously she was very active in Chicago and, and beyond after uh, uh, meeting Barnett, but you and I were talking before this started and I kind of wanted to come back around to this notion of autobiography versus like her personal writing, what you were just saying. Mm -hmm. um, in the in her personal writing, you get a little bit more about who she is and and, and maybe some of her fears or, or just more about her as a human being. The autobiography seems very much focused on I'm telling a very particular story of how I did the things that I did and why I did the things that I did. And so you do not get certain things that you might be looking for, like, you know, the idea of the her marriage to Barnett is handled in a sentence. You know, it's right. she in the in the autobiography. It's she meets him in Chicago, um, and then she buys the paper from him that he had had a partial stake in, and takes control of the I think it's the conservator, and then um, and then she mentions that she married him and has a child. Right. It's just sort of like, and then you know it becomes the Barnetts. We're a couple. We do things together, but you know. A, she was 30-something years old, which in that era was very late to be married and be having children. Um, she doesn't really talk about why she married him, what their relationship was. So I was just fascinated by, for her, this autobiography had a very particular bent of what it was telling. And it was not her personal life. It was not those things. You had mentioned that there was something that you were looking for that was not there. I was curious what that was. Right. I mean, uh, for instance, I mean, right now is the, the centennial of the um, 19th Amendment. And she, um, Ida, you know, marched in the mm -hmm. 1913 parade. And it's a very famous story that people are really uplifting now about how she refused to go into the back of the parade um, that was designated for black women and, um, and how she inserted herself into the Illinois delegation front and center. Um, which I'm so happy she did that, but she didn't mention it in her autobiography. I had to find other sources to, to learn about the details of, of how that um, all happened. And the other thing that I was curious about now that we're having this whole, you know, coronavirus um, thing that we're dealing with and all of the social distancing and on and on, and everybody's talking about, well, there was a, you know, a flu in 1918, yeah. Um, and an epidemic and how was that handled? And so obviously she was alive in 1918. And so I just looked at her autobiography and like, what happened? You know, um, did they have to wear a mask? And, you know, cause she had four children in right. 1918 and like, how did they shut down the schools? Like, I was just curious how, how that was handled. And it wasn't mentioned at all. Um, you know, so I'm like, okay. So, I mean, I'm sure it was a big deal, but mm -hmm. for some reason, she just didn't even mention it. So I, my curiosity remains on how she as a mother handled, you know, dealing with four children who are underage during a pandemic, um, you know, that's similar to, I guess, we're, with what we're dealing with now. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it is interesting what she chose to put in and not to put in and what she focuses on in the book. And um <laughs> And the, uh, well, I think I, I was going to ask you some more, you know, about that, you know, when you were talking about 1913, the, um, and, and, and the suffragette movement, you know, obviously, and she talks about it in different ways, but the, um, you know, there's this huge break, obviously, 
after the you know, passage of the 15th Amendment and the, and the ability for African-Americans to vote, the suffragettes were a huge part of the abolitionist movement. And then um, there's a break. And so there's a very racial divide um, amongst the suffragettes um, because of their anger over not being included um, and frustration in not being included in getting that right to vote you know, back in the 1860s. Um, and, but Ida fights against that. Um, but there was definitely a lot of, um, of issues. And she talks about some of those people in different ways throughout the book that she's having to deal with both, you know, in the 1920s, but also even, you know, back in the 1890s when she's traveling abroad. And there are certain people that she's having to call out because they almost endorse the lynching or they do endorse the lynching. Right. Well, I mean, there's just a famous and, um, you know, sort of conflict between her and Frances Willard, uh, Mm. which a lot of people are sort of delving into today, um, you know, on on how, (laughs) I mean, you you know, some people think that history is boring, but I'm like, you you must not like soap operas um, (laughs) very much because it's a soap opera. Um, of just the conflict and the back and forth and the sort of, you know, accusations and um, names and all this kind of thing. She and Frances Willard really did not get along. Um, And, you know, so that's an interesting thing for people to delve into. And it's the question of allyship um, between, you know, white women and black women. I mean, because, uh, Frances Willard had a really huge platform and Ida asked her if she could use her platform to speak up against lynching. Um, because she had, there were like 200,000, you know, members of the, the temperance, um, association and Frances Willard really didn't, um, agree, you know, to, to use her platform in that way. And so Ida really called her out on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> It, it was it's pretty interesting stuff um and as you said it is somewhat soap opera like at points um i think that is is probably a great place for us to stop because this is what this is about is keeping this alive keeping her writing alive keeping her work alive making sure that people understand how important it is um so i wanted to thank you for doing all that you've done and for being with us today and and really talking through this. So thank you for doing this. And thank you to everybody who logged in today. This was great. Thank you, Carrie. We appreciate it. And uh, (laughs) And thank you to the American uh, Writers Museum. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week as we kick off National Hispanic Heritage Month with author and immigrant rights activist, Ulyssa Arce. Now go, be inspired and find the mind of a writer in yourself.